the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeed, and he's here to say good afternoon. Welcome Thursday, the 10th day of August, 5 after 5. Craig Roberts in your ear as we are... uh, most days here on Lifeline, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. A couple of quick things I want to start with, completely unrelated to uh, topics at hand, but uh, matters, I think, for folks to be in uh, in prayer on. Uh, first, wow, if you are a fan of Hawaii, and who on the West Coast isn't, and I know so many people that vacation there, have honeymooned there. Spent wonderful times in the islands. Uh, you know, we in California can certainly relate to the threat of wildfires, but it's getting pretty frightening because at least here we can bring in firefighting equipment from neighboring states. There are multiple routes of escape. Um, it's just a, a whole different scenario when it's on an island. Well, the latest news out of Maui. 53 people have now lost their lives. They are now moving into mass evacuations. Um, Dozens have injured. Uh, Hundreds of structures have been damaged or destroyed. And uh, the Lahaina fire currently apparently is about 80% contained, but it doesn't mean that the threat is over with by a long shot. So be be in prayer for Hawaii, would you, and specifically the uh, the residents of Maui. The other thing, too, is we're going to do a show about this one of these days again. And we haven't talked about it in a while, but the dangers of uncontrolled social media. And I know some people were upset saying, oh, it's going to be the equivalent of the violation of First Amendment rights. Should we shut down TikTok? But, you know, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Speaking of fires and get away with it and call it a First Amendment right. So why do we protect TikTok on the same basis um, you might have seen the video. It's It's been all over the Internet. London is trying to restore a bit of tranquility to the city's busiest shopping district. They're off of Oxford Street. As posts began appearing on TikTok earlier today, calling for people to raid a sporting goods store. And they showed up and did and created mass confusion and panic. Nine arrests, police issued dispersal orders. The city's mayor says he's concerned about the nonsense on TikTok encouraging people to commit crimes. And nonsense it is. And, you know, we're, we're poisoning the waters with our young people these days because nobody pays any attention to what's going on. And then things like this happen. Okay, off to bigger and more pleasant things. Got a list for you. See if you can guess what these folks have in common. Sandra Bullock, Jamie Foxx, Cheryl Crow, 
Nicole Kidman, Meg Ryan. I know you're going to say, oh, Craig, that's easy. They're all film stars. Well, you'd be partially right. But wait, there's more. Nelson Mandela, Steve Jobs, John Lennon, Marilyn Monroe, and Babe Ruth. And now that I've given you that somewhat eclectic list, do you know what they all have in common? These incredible business people, entrepreneurs, actors and actresses, and one of the greatest names in baseball and music, were all adopted. Fancy that. Today we're going to learn about another amazing adoption story as we welcome into the conversation a gentleman who wrote the story and screenplay for a phenomenal film. In fact, we promoted it here on KFAX about a decade ago. October Baby, to recall that. Grossed over $6 million. Playwriter Cecil Stokes joins us. Along with his son, Boone Stokes, together they are co-founders of Boone and Me, a nonprofit addressing the issue of adopting from foster care. And guys, welcome. Good to have you both. Hello. Thank you. Thank you so much. Cecil, I want to start with you. There's an interesting backstory here that I'll share with listeners in that uh, my producer apparently happened to be at a writer's conference and sat across a dinner table from you uh, just about a decade ago, where at the time you were kind of um, remunerating over the desire to one day maybe become a dad. And here we are a decade later and it's come to fruition. Tell us how that happened. Uh, yeah, that's, it's amazing. Um, I, I've always wanted to adopt, you know, because we have so many foster children in this country. Uh, but like like, uh, like you said, about a decade ago, I had been uh, dating a woman that I thought I was going to marry. And when we ended up not marrying, we had talked so much about adopting several children from foster care that when I became single again, I thought, gosh, is this something I could do on my own? And I prayed about it for a few years and asked the Lord, uh, could I adopt on my own? And for the first two years, I heard no. And then I finally heard yes. And uh, my first placement that came into my home uh, became my son. And we just celebrated eight years together this past Sunday. Phenomenal. And and Boone, I'm curious, hearing that list of all of those notable celebrities, political leaders, entrepreneurs, musicians, baseball player, uh, you're in pretty good company, aren't you? Yes, I am. I love my dad and I would tr- I wouldn't trade anything for him. Tell me, Boone, what was your life like uh, leading up to first the foster placement and then eventually the adoption? To, to tell us a little bit, a bit of your backstory. So I've been through 10 different foster families, and I, leading up to them, like some, then none of them, they were like pieces of a puzzle, and none of them really fit right. And some of them, like, for example, just were from whole different other puzzles. But when I met my dad, he was like not only the fitting puzzle, but he taught me how to fit God in around the the other pieces in the puzzle. 
And I like the way you phrase that, that, that some of these other foster families were pieces of a puzzle, but came from an entirely different puzzle, which yes. I think is a, a very gracious way of putting, yeah, that just wasn't going to work. As as some yeah. might say, that dog's not going to hunt. Um, yeah. th- that process for you in 10 total, you said, that must have felt very, uh, should I say, very destabilizing. Uh, you know, on average, you, your, your placement with the family might have been, in some cases, just a few months. Yes. And as yes. a young man growing up, stability is critically important. I come from a divorced family where my f- folks separated at the age of when I was five, divorced when I was six. In fact, on my birthday, happy birthday. And then all of the custody battles and the back and forth stuff. So at least I still had contact with my my parents, but it was this constant, you know, springing back and forth, back and forth that was kind of a pretty significant decent stabilizing scenario in my life but in your in your situation Boone I can't imagine what that must have felt like yeah it's a little hard sometimes but I try to count my blessings and look at the positives and I mean my dad means a hundred different parents all combined in one wow now give me a sense from from the time you were first placed in uh, foster care with Cecil, and I would imagine that's the way it happened, right, Cecil? He was initially a, a foster child for you? Yes. Okay. Um, you know, there are you know, two types of you know, foster placements. You know, there are some foster placements where they're still working on reunification, okay. and then other foster placements where parental rights have already been terminated and the child is available for adoption. Okay. So I was in that second class. Like I, had put, I had asked my social worker, I said, I only want to accept children who parental rights are already terminated, that, you know, there's no fear of the child going back to someone and having to leave me because I'm committed to giving this child a home forever. Yeah, yeah, I get that. And and was this the first um, foster child placed in your home? He was. I only had my license for maybe two and a half weeks. Wow. Okay, so you're coming into this. There's got to be a fair amount of, of fear and trepidation. This is all new. You have no idea what's going to happen, how it's going to all work out. And and Boone, for you, there must have been a sense of, oh, boy, here I go again. <laughs> there certainly was, but I, I love to share, like, the beginning. Like, when we when I first arrived, I was so nervous coming up to that door, but... I don't remember who flung the door open, whether it was me or my dad, but whoever did. And then I remember my social worker saying, y'all, you two have one great thing in common. Y'all are both really good huggers. So he got down on his knees. I was short enough, so I didn't have to get down on my knees. And he flung me around in circles, caught my back, and we were having a competition, and I screamed, you win. Wow. So it, it almost sounds like you you must have had a little bit of a sense in in that very first meeting that this was going to be different. Yes, I did. And I got to say, it must have been a God thing, but there was just something different about him. And not my dad wasn't even the all he wasn't the first single dad who tried to adopt me, which was, in my opinion, just crazy. But then. When, before I met my dad, I didn't know if this was going to work out, but I really think it was just God's timing. 
Yeah, uh, clearly there were other elements at play in here, uh, you know, for for not only this to work out the way it did, but now here the two of you are running an organization to help other people understand what this looks like, how it works, and what a tremendous blessing it can be. You know, so often we couch adoption in terms of a family who's going to open their home and help a child who's gone through, you know, separation from a family because of whatever reasons. You can all imagine what that list looks like. And that it tends to be oftentimes couched in terms of one-way relationship, one-way giving, and not realizing, as we're about to hear as our conversation with Cecil and Boone continues, that it's very much a two-way street and very much two-way challenges, but also incredible two-way blessings. We'll talk about that as our conversation continues. With us on this segment of Lifeline, we are visiting with Cecil Stokes and Boone Stokes. Together, they are co-founders of Boone and Me, a nonprofit that addresses the issue of adopting from foster care. Details on the web at booneandme.com. You say, Craig, how do you spell Boone? Think of Daniel Boone, B-O-O-N-E, booneandme.org. A brief timeout. Back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back. Our conversation tonight with Boone and Cecil Stokes. Together, they are co-founders of Boone and Me, a nonprofit that addresses the issue of adopting from foster care. So, Cecil, this must have been a an amazing moment for you because... By the time Boone shows up, he's an old hand. He's an expert at this. He knows all the ins and outs and and, and at least has a kind of an idea of what to expect. For you, this is an absolute clean slate. So Boone indicates, yeah, it was pretty early on he realized that there was a God thing going on here. What about for you? You know, I had been praying for uh, my son because I believe God told me when I was in college that I would have a son. So I had already been praying for my son for decades at that point. So when Boone walked through that door, I had already committed to the Lord. I know he kind of has a rap sheet from foster care and being in 10 different foster homes and all kinds of these maladaptive behaviors and challenges, but he's mine. And so for me, there really wasn't a question. And, you know, I think one of the, the blessings that comes sometimes with a Y chromosome is we, we, we jump before we think. And well, I put a lot of thought and prayer into this. I just accepted that this is going to be awesome and uh, just believe God had made me capable of it and that it was going to work out. And, you know, eight years later, I realized how naive I was because it is incredibly challenging. When Boone and I speak, we call it, we say it's a brutal life because every day has a little bit of brutal in it and a lot of beautiful. And uh, I didn't know that eight years ago, but I'm glad I didn't. Um, so it was just, it was an amazing day the day we got to first meet. And in that ensuing time, uh, you know, obviously there's aspects of this that you're 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 getting to know each other, your 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 strong points, your faults, your good habits, your bad habits. You know, in in some degrees, and folks understand the context in which I'm saying this. It's almost like a marriage. You know somebody, but you really don't know them until you live with them. And 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 here, the two of you are kind of sizing each other up to determine whether or not this is going to be a good fit. Um, Give me a sense, Boone, of what that process was like for you. What what were the things going into this this new father-son relationship that most excited you? And what were some of the things that made you the most nervous? So what I was really, what 
something that made me excited about was that, I mean, I could just see my dad's love for me pretty early on. Like, he was hugging me and stuff. And then there's some things that also made me nervous, like... Uh, like there's some things that we had to change from that I've from my past that I've gotten comfortable with, like watching bad TV shows, playing bad video games, listening to bad music, and that kind of made me a little nervous because I grew accustomed to those things, and I just didn't know how to handle it. Because I mean, when I first came to my dad. I remember saying, I want to watch The Walking Dead and I want a cherry Coke. And my dad said, no, that is not what we're going to do in this household. We are going to make this a Christian household. So I was a little nervous, and I was also a little nervous just coming into it. Yeah, understandably so. And I would imagine, Cecil, there must have been some fear and trepidation for you as well in the sense that, you know, oftentimes we'll hear stories about, well, kids that have gone through foster care because there's so many different families, so many different rules, so many different viewpoints and and ways of approaching everything from standards of living and discipline, the whole nine yards. You didn't really know, other than whatever profile that you had been given by social workers really what to expect did you um no and I, even when i read over the list of the things that you know had supposedly happened in, in boone's different placements uh, god just told me that that this is not who he is and actually the foster care workers when i got boone's profile and said i would love to adopt this child his social workers turned me down because he had been in two single dad homes that decided to not adopt him after three months and they didn't want to try it again so I actually had to fly for him. I said to my social worker, can I write them a letter and tell them why I believe I am his father? And I wrote them a letter, and it was all about how I'm not going to let him grow up with labels. Everything that was written in that sheet was going to be left behind because I didn't want him to grow up with all these labels. And it convinced them, you know, to give me a shot. And his social worker actually said to me, you know, no one has fought for this child his entire life, and you're fighting for him without ever meeting him. Wow. Yeah, that, that, that says a lot and, and also says a lot in terms of the approach of new beginnings, because let's face it, we, we all make mistakes in our past. And when you look at some of the challenges that Boone has gone through, if somebody says, well, the, the child has behavioral problems. Really? Who wouldn't? Right. So it becomes a learning and and Boone, as you indicated, also kind of a relearning process as well. Give me that sense. Because many people eavesdropping on this conversation say, well, I know what that bond is between parent and child because, you know, you're flesh of their flesh, blood of their blood. You've known them their whole life. They held you when you were first delivered. You know, they're there when you went through teething and when you, you know, learned to walk and hurt your knee the first time you were riding a bicycle and all of that stuff. There is a significant gap, Cecil, of Boone's younger life that you missed out on. And a lot of that, a lot of those experiences are really bonding experiences as well. So I'm curious, absent that kind of early on history, how? what have you had to do? What are some of the intentional steps that you've taken in order to really bond? Um, gosh, I kind of have two answers for that question. One of the things is, you know, a lot of these children who come from foster care, 
haven't had a lot of those beautiful experiences happen to them. Uh, Boone had been with me for about three weeks, and one night after he got out of the shower, I said, you know, do you, do you want me to dry your hair? And so he let me towel dry his hair. And when I took the towel away, I saw this smile on his face I hadn't seen in three weeks. And I said, where did that smile come from? And he said, no one's ever done that for me before. Wow. So there's so much, you know, from these children from, you know, from vulnerable places that you still get to enjoy those first times with them. But they're at an age when the child is actually older and can appreciate it even more. So there was tons of bonding that was happening naturally just with the love and commitment that we had for one another. But one of the things that I did on day one is I knew that he was coming from a place that was darker and that he probably wouldn't have the same perspective that I had. So I decided that we were going to end every day saying our prayers and three blessings. And just as I just as I figured on the very first night, I said, name three things that were good that happened to you today. And he looks at me, he's like, I didn't have three good things happen to me today. So I had to explain to him how the blessings can be small. Uh-huh. So literally for every single day of the last eight years, we end our night saying three blessings each and then saying our prayers before bed. And so that just having that structure, I think, is a, and, and helping create a new paradigm, paradigm shift for them has been one of the things that's, that's helped us the most. Clearly, the, the, the goal that the two of you have in creating Boone and Me uh, is to help people better understand what adopting from foster is all about um, and the incredible blessings because it it tends to get a a bad reputation. You say foster care and all of a sudden people have all kinds of crazy notions in their mind. Uh, Boone, let me start first with you because you're the experienced one here in this group. Uh, From your perspective of having gone through multiple foster placements and now finally you found your real home. You found your permanent home. What message do you want to share with parents out there that have contemplated becoming adoptive parents and just haven't taken that final step? What would you say to them? I love answering this question. I just I want to say to them, give them a chance. Because every kid has the chance to be a world changer. You just got to change their world first. Mm. And I believe that every kid out there has the chance and potential to become world changers. Because God changed the world and we are made in God's image. So I feel like we have the chance to change the world. Not in the same way. Like we can't speak creation, but we can change we can change different things. And so if you you can also change the way they live, the way they watch TV, the their eating habits. And then once those kids get adopted, they bring kids and they change the way their kids do and you just bring up this whole cycle of change in the world. Brilliant. Now, I'm, I'm curious, Cecil, for you, um, you've actually put together a book called I Love You to the Sun and Beyond. Um, and, and I understand that this is really uh, designed with the idea of helping kids who so often have been deprived of even the basic uh, levels of human kindness and genuine love, what it's like to be loved. Uh, walk me through that. You know, Craig, you know, it's a children's book, um, but... Truly, it's for it's for every it's for every child because when we when they walk out of our homes in the morning to go to school or preschool or wherever they go, 
they're bombarded with darkness at this point in, 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 in history. And we need to tell our children they are loved, you know, 10, 12 times a day, hug them eight times a day. There are so many things that we can do as parents. And so this book, I, you know, I Love You, the Sun and Beyond, came from a game that Boone and I would play when he first arrived. You know, I would say to him, oh, I love you more than peanut butter. And he would say, I love you more than chocolate. And we would have this little competition to see who could one-up each other. <laughs> and so this book came from that little competition we had. And in the book, you get to tell your child your love. They're loved over 20 times. But I compared it to famous people or places in the world so that they learn at the same time. So like one of the paragraphs is, you know, I love you longer than the Amazon, and that is really long. I love you tighter than a python's hug. Wow, he is super strong. And then in the back of the book, there's this back matter where you can learn a paragraph about the Amazon or learn a paragraph about a python. So you're teaching and educating your child while you're also subliminally letting them hear their love 20 times while you're reading one book to them. So, I mean, it's, we've gotten letters from people that send it away to their kids, you know, when their kids go to college. They send it away to remind them how much they're loved when they've gone away. Or one mom in her 70s bought it for her 50-year-old son when he was going through chemotherapy, and she would read it for him. So we all need to be reminded that we're loved. Boy, isn't that true? And, you know, when you've had a, a child that's gone through a difficult uh, upbringing um, through the experiences, uh, there's a lot of catching up to do and kind of filling that reservoir of a sense of, of love and belonging and acceptance. And so I... My hats are off to both of you. I, I, I'm just in awe uh, of, of what you guys have done here, what God is doing uh, with you two collectively and independently. And uh, Boone, if you don't grow up to be president of the United States or something one day, I'll be very surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm there just yet. Well, yeah, yeah, I give you a few more years yet. Uh, but yeah. at any rate, hey, listen, congratulations to you both. We'll point folks in the direction of booneandme.org. That's booneandme.org. By the way, we referenced the book, I Love You to the Sun and Beyond. I'll let you know it's available through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, et cetera, et cetera. But if you'd like to get one that has a note inscribed personally from the author to your child, um, you can actually order the book directly through uh, Cecil. Just go to Cecil Stokes, uh, email him, I should say, Cecil Stokes, S-T-O-K-E-S, Cecil Stokes at M-E.com, and he'll connect you up. You can order the book through him directly, and he'll be happy to autograph it. And, uh, you know, for an extra couple bucks, maybe Boone will autograph it, too. <laughs> hey, guys, thanks so much. What a delight to visit with both of you. Uh, you're, you're really a great testimony to how this can really work in such an incredible way. So keep up the good work, and thanks again for your time. There's Cecil Stokes, Boone Stokes, on the web at booneandme.org. That's booneandme.org. All the good stuff about adopting from foster care. 535 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Let's talk about money for a moment, shall we? Specifically your money. Let me first begin by saying the markets closed slightly higher today. July's consumer price index rose by 3.2% on a yearly basis. Not really what we wanted, but... You know, perhaps better than it's been, to be sure. That was against expectations of 3.3%. At the closing bell, the Dow Jones Industrial Average ended the day with 52 points on the gain side to close at 35,176. The S&P 500 up by one point to close at 44,68. And the tech-heavy Nasdaq gained 15 points to end up at 13,737. So let's talk about 
inflation. We know that the Federal Open Market Committee that uh, meets monthly has been looking at the issue of inflation that at one point was well over 7-8% uh, in this country after literally decades of hovering around 2. Uh, set a lot of panic into the markets to be sure and uh, the Fed stepped up and said yeah we know how we're going to fix this. We're going to raise interest rates and that's going to slow things down and, and maybe to a degree it has worked but certainly not as fast as they would have liked. The Fed has raised the overnight prime rate by 11 occasions over the last 16 months. Where, where does all of this leave us? And, and what about the efforts of the administration to try and tame inflation? Let's get some insights now from Ken Davis. Ken is a senior attorney with the Federalist Society, former deputy attorney general for the state of Virginia. His musings have been read in such notable publications as the Wall Street Journal, Washington Examiner, and, of course, the Federalist Society Review. And, Ken, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. Well, it's great to be with you, Craig. So inflation, it's uh, better than it's been, but not where we'd like to see it, and certainly well over a point higher than the Fed's target rate of 2%. Here we are, as I indicated in my opening remarks, uh, well over a year and a half into this, with the Fed bumping the overnight rate 11 times over the course of that period. And it would seem as if, well, we're certainly doing better than some countries. We're also worse than others. In fact, I'm thinking of moving to either Switzerland or China. Switzerland's inflation rate last month was only 1.6%. China, minus 0.3%. So we're doing better than some, not so good compared to others. And, And let me ask you this from your perspective. How long do you think it's going to take for the Fed to get their wish and get this down to 2%? Well, the uh, 2% inflation rate that's uh, on an annual basis has been their uh, official uh, target rate uh, for years, really. And it's, it's, it's come as a matter of their policy decisions uh, to be um, their official and working definition of price stability. And um, 3.2%. For the CPI on an annual basis is, is certainly down below the peak of uh, last summer, uh, but I think uh, the rate of decrease in the inflation figures has started to slow, and some of the, uh, I'll say, improvements that we've seen uh, have been uh, easy uh, relatively easy uh, factors. The price of gasoline came way down um, for a variety of reasons. It could be headed back up. So I think it's um, it's going to be above their target rate for uh, I think the foreseeable future. They they meet soon to decide about whether to pause or or, or raise uh, interest rates again. They uh, they raised them over the last many months at a record pace, and now um, we have interest rates at their highest level in decades. And so a lot of people would like a pause. A lot of people would say, well, 3.2 is, is really getting close to 2, so why don't we pause? Uh, but those are, you know, economically uh, interested statements from various people. Um, and the Fed will decide what it 
uh, what it uh, will. I, I would expect to see, if not this time, then certainly um, next time or the time after, if uh, inflation stays at 3.2, um, further rate increases. Oh, I, I, I don't doubt that. I mean, there there was a time in which uh, earlier this year, the Fed seemed to start to signal that maybe they would lay off. And I think there was one month when they decided not to touch anything. And while we're grateful, the last couple of increases have only been 25 basis points. Uh, still, it, it, it remains they want to get it below two. But I want to talk about a broader issue here, Ken, because there's kind of a backstory to this that a lot of people don't realize. And unfortunately, Unfortunately, those that get impacted the most by this um, are probably not even aware of this. And that is to say that, while the Fed is touting the, the goal of 2% inflation rate. People think, well, all of that sounds reasonable. And boy, if we can get there, won't that be fantastic? Uh, but here's what they're not re- taking into consideration. And every senior citizen that's receiving Social Security should painfully be aware of this. And that is that when the, when the federal government calculates the inflation rates uh, uh, under some rules that were put into place by the Obama administration, and this is used predominantly for the annual COLA, the cost of living adjustment done by Social Security, but it affects much more than that, and that is that they don't take into account food and fuel. Now, can I see a, a raise of hands? And if you're if you're driving right now, please keep one on the steering wheel. But everybody raise their hand that says, well, Craig, good thing that doesn't bother me because I don't eat and I never go anywhere. And I don't mind if the house is 30 below in the winter. I mean, again, <laughs> we calculate inflation rates and then we leave out the two areas that hardly any of us can avoid spending money on and the two areas where we've seen some of the highest inflation rates of recent times. It's one thing for the Fed to say, well, boy, it got up to 7%. Take a step into the local grocery store, and that number's more like 20%. Well, yes. And uh, it comes down to one of those cases, uh, you know, do you believe your your eyes or in your everyday experience um, or what the government is telling you? And what people need to understand uh, and they, they do their best to hide this, is that the CPI, which is now 3.2% at an annual basis, um, understates actual inflation for a variety of reasons. You know, sometimes they'll back out food and fuel, but they also make other adjustments that end up um, dramatically undercounting the actual rate of inflation. CPI is supposed to be um, an official accurate measure of the um, rate of increase in the prices of a everyday basket of goods and services as they define it. But one thing they do is that um, they make adjustments for what they call substitution effects. Uh, they assume that, well, if the price of steak uh, or a certain kind of food goes up, um, uh, by a certain percentage that people will substitute cheaper uh, alternatives. We'll go from steak to chicken to spam, and then I don't know where after that. But they call it the substitution, consumer substitution adjustments. Um, the other thing they do is is reduce the actual reported market price increases for what they determine are quality improvements. So, for example, 
another part of the government recently outlawed incandescent bulbs. And um, now after August the 1st, we can only buy uh, so-called energy-efficient LED light bulbs for our homes and businesses. They cost two to three times what an incandescent bulb cost, but the, the, the amount of the uh, price increase that's picked up in the CPI will not be, will not reflect that kind of adjustment fully because the government will determine that LEDs bulbs are uh, higher quality so there really really is a, um, a false understatement in the CPI I think uh, Larry Summers a noted economist former um, um, government official in Democrat administrations has said that the actual consumer price uh, increases that we've seen over the last um, couple of years are, are twice what is measured by and reported through the CPI. So when people go to the grocery store and say, it doesn't look like 3.2% to me, um, it isn't. And anyway, this is a rate of increase, the CPI. Prices are increasing by such and such a percentage on an annual basis. Um, uh, 3.2% this July compared with last July, etc. If you look at the total cumulative price increases that are on the books and are not going away uh, since um, President Biden took office in January 2021, the same basket of goods and services are up 18%. Well, and there's another issue here, too, that uh, we can dig into a little bit uh, deeper in a moment after we take a quick time out. Larry Summers, by the way, um, former Treasury Secretary, very concerned about what's transpiring in relationship to not just inflation, but what's happening with wages as well. But here's a, a, a dynamic that certainly producers of goods have figured out, and I would imagine Ken, and you can clarify this when we come back after the break, but I would imagine that this dynamic of inflation, because you can't easily put a number on it, probably is not calculated into the overall inflation rate. And that is something that we've all experienced. It's called shrinkflation. If you wonder, what, what exactly is that, Craig? Well, next time you go into the grocery store, go buy a three-pound can of coffee. Oops, it's actually two pounds, eight ounces. Buy a pound of spaghetti. You're going to boil a little pasta. It's not a pound. It's 12 ounces. Even to the point where if they don't meddle with the package, they put less product in there. Check and see sometime how long your deodorant lasts. And you want a little experiment? The next time you go and pick up your favorite thing of deodorant, peel the label off and then hold it up to a bright light and see how much product you really get. The package hasn't changed any, but if you're getting an ounce worth of product in what used to be four or five ounces worth... Consider yourself fortunate. Ken Davis with us tonight. He is the senior 
attorney for the Federalist Society, former deputy attorney general for the state of Virginia. We're talking about inflation. And boy, I tell you what, there's more monkey business with the numbers here than any bookie in Las Vegas. (laughs) We'll take a time out back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Ken Davis with us today. He is with the um, Federalist Society, a senior attorney. Information, by the way, on the web at FedSOC. Just think of abbreviation of Federalist Society, FedSOC.org. We're talking about inflation rates and the ways in which uh, not only does the government tend to seemingly cook the numbers, but um, even product producers uh, vis-a-vis things like shrinkflation. My goodness, Ken, if we begin to calculate all of this in, we put back into the inflation rate things like the cost of fuel, cost to run the car, heat the house, food, and then we add in the the erosion of our buying power by considering the impact of shrinkflation. What must that real number look like? Well, it's a lot higher than 3.2%, and it's higher. The overall devastating, corrosive, destructive, demoralizing impact is is even greater than the cumulative 17 percent 18 percent increase in the cost of living since president biden took office i mean it, it as you say i mean shrinkflation shows up and another term for another type of the same corporate rem, um, maneuver is disqualification that is uh, a lot of services um you go to a restaurant there's no bread. You go to a hotel, um, uh, There, there's no third towel, on and on and on. It goes all the way across uh, the economy, and it's, uh, it's a real, real loss. You know, the one thing that I find the most troubling about all of this... I'm, I'm old enough to remember when folks used to have mortgage burning parties meaning they'd paid off the mortgage they owed nothing to the bank um, every every single fiber of the two by fours uh, they owned every one of them right um, not only is that probably an experience that few people in the future will ever have but then you look at a country uh, 32 33 trillion dollars in debt with no end in sight uh, we've just seen consumer credit meaning the folks that are putting money on their revolving credit cards, reach $1 trillion. And I have to wonder, are are Americans becoming slaves to indebtedness and the kind of indebtedness, Ken, that there's never any hope of them coming out from underneath, meaning they'll never live in a house that's paid off, they'll never have a zero balance on the credit card, they'll never experience what it means to enjoy total financial freedom, and life will always be a matter of making tough choices. Which kid gets to go to college? Which kid doesn't? Do we repair the leaking roof or fix the the bad transmission because we can't do both i mean it sounds like a a very tarnished almost tragic direction that the american dream is headed in well that's the um, ultimate uh, destructive consequence of inflation brought about by irresponsible government spending and money printing uh, they do that they print the money and and throw the dollar bills out of the helicopters down to favored constituencies 
to buy votes uh, to maintain their power. People, the most important thing for people to understand, you know, they say we're fighting inflation, we're going to get it down to 2%, price stability and so forth. Inflation for the government isn't a bug in the system. It's a fundamental feature. They're not fighting inflation. They depend on inflation because it is by inflating the dollars, cheapening each dollar, that they are more able in the future to refinance the debt they have built up and, and, and turn it over with the next cycle of bonds that are easier to sell because the dollar-denominated figures have all been cheapened by inflation. They're doing this intentionally. That's why the Federal Reserve says their target is 2%. That's why they say we will have price stability when we can get down slowly to 2% uh, inflation. 2% inflation at an annual rate is not price stability. Um, Prices are going to double in about 35 years and over and quadruple over a typical lifetime. Uh, No, at 2%, if we never went above 2%, we would still have, over the long term, ruinous, ruinous, Inflation. Well, especially That's when you consider they, consumer debt and and the debt to own a home, uh, you know, durable goods purchases, shrinkflation, as we mentioned a moment ago. Uh, what's happening with the cost of an education? I mean, it, it just it, there's a multiplicity of issues at play here. And let's be very clear about something: um, it, it's easy for the the party that's out of power to blame the party that's in power, and then as we typically see in Congress. Uh, you know, uh, musical chairs every two years or certainly every four years, the potentiality of a change in leadership, change of control of both Congress as well as possibly the White House. And so dependent upon who's in, it's going to be the other guy that's uh, th- that's complaining. Uh, let's be clear about it. The, the only fundamental difference when it comes to deficit spending between Republicans and Democrats is simply this. The Democrats tax and spend, the Republicans borrow and spend. But believe me, they both both deficits spend to to a fault continuously and both make promises about how they're going to fix it because the other party has broken it. And then the minute they get in office, they behave in the same fashion. So if you want to lay blame, folks, we need to start taking aim at what's going on in Congress and the people that we are voting into Congress, um, because otherwise we're, we're on a pretty ugly treadmill here. And it seems as if we're just never going to get off that until it just breaks or goes haywire and throws us off. Our thanks to uh, Ken Davis for being with us. Ken, again, is the senior attorney for the Federalist Society. Ken, we appreciate your time and your insights. Six o'clock from KFAX. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.